And thank you. Good morning, Susie. Welcome. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's November 14th, 2018. Welcome to winter. Uh, this is the last uh, Pediatric Grand Rounds before Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving. We won't meet next Wednesday, but we will be back the following week on November 28th for an update on the flu, influenza, uh, probably timely, hopefully timely. So um, this is also our kickoff of our Chad Pulmonary Mini Fellowship Series. So uh, I don't see them, but I know our friends in Manchester, Nashua, Concord, perhaps Keene, and across the system are tuning in. Uh, the Mini Fellowship Series, as we do annually, we make sure that our um, our specialties update us on important and common conditions in pediatrics, um, perhaps what you might consider bread and butter, but with updates just as today's talk, with the goal of making sure that the care that is transitioned between general pediatrics and specialty pediatrics is on the same page and is consistent. There's also clearly a motive to help the general pediatricians um, manage and keep more of the, the patients with these conditions in their practice um, and hopefully make their practice more fulfilling and closer to home. And there's a little bit of an ulterior motive in that um, in this particular case, we know for the next couple of months due to some leaves, Dr. Will will be uh, limited and, and alone, essentially, in her section. And so the more you can handle in your practices, the better it will be for Lou as she's holding down the fort. She does it well. As you saw, she was the Robert B. Kerr Award winner from Breathe New Hampshire for 2018, joining Lynn also probably, Lynn Feenan in the room is a previous Kerr Award winner, and Dr. Robert Klein, who's joining us, uh, a previous New Hampshire uh, Breathe Award winner. So the field of pulmonology and, and, and Breathe New Hampshire is well represented. So uh, Dr. Will is a professor of pediatrics here. She um, is chief of pediatric pulmonology. She also has been acting as the chief of allergy and immunology for Dartmouth-Hitchcock, as well as the interim CF Center Director, in addition to her full-time role as the Pediatric CF Center Director. And she probably has two other directorships that I've taxed her with because she takes on roles with great, um, great aplomb and, and great uh, skill. Uh, previously had been an acting chair, I think, in Georgia, Medical College of Georgia, where she was prior to joining us up here. And we've been thrilled to have her for probably a decade at this point. I didn't even print your CV out because you're so well known to all of us. So without further ado, we'll let uh, Lou catch us up on asthma in 2018. Good morning. Take a deep breath. <laughs> Susie said she would support me, not, not throw tomatoes. Um, over the last, well, actually, first let me talk about our, our, um, our mini-fellowship that, that uh, we are moving forward with. In January, Lynn Feenan will give us an update on cystic fibrosis. I hope she remembers that. Um, in March, uh, Brian O'Sullivan is talking, and I must admit I have forgotten his topic. Um, in May, uh, I, we actually, since you will have been through our whole section academically by, the, by March, um, <laughs> Uh, I am bringing in a guest uh, from my previous stomping ground in Georgia, Dr. Katie Mackey, to talk about the respiratory aspects of pediatric sleep, for which we are woefully inadequate uh, here. So it will be a good, a good update and a good filler uh, as, a, as a teaching um, tool. So uh, as, I move on to, as I move on to disclosures, of which I have none, uh, except there will be some discussion of some uh, potential off-label use of medicines, which we do every day, I mean, it, but, but pointing out some of our off-label uses of, of uh, medications. Um, 
and I would, what I would hope to accomplish by the end of the 40 minutes or so is uh, to talk about some alternative guidelines to asthma management, uh, to, redu to review some updates to the uh, maintenance management of, of particularly moderate to severe asthma, and to introduce the role of uh, the biologics in asthma management, which are, are taking an increasing role. So as, um, as this has unfolded over the last several months and now weeks to days, um, it hasn't unfolded exactly as I had envisioned it several months ago. Nothing, nothing ever does. Um, and it has definitely been, a fellowship is, is a learning event, and it's definitely been a learning event for me, more than, more than a teaching event for you, I suspect. Um, but what I hope to do is to sort of review the literature that I have recently reviewed uh, in, in preparing for this, uh, which is what this is good for, um, and, and bring us all up to speed on some of the latest uh, developments. For, for years, since 1992, the, on, on your right, the um, NIH asthma guidelines called the EPR3, the Expert Panel Report 3, which was the one published in 2007, has been the holy grail of asthma management in this country. I mean, we all talk to, that's the, the NIH guidelines, the NIH guidelines, that's what we use as our source for asthma management tools. Um, it was first uh, published in 1992, revised in 1997, in 2002, you see a pattern here about every five years. In 2007, nothing since 2007. So over 10 years without a revision to the guidelines. Always said it's, it's in revision, in revision. Uh, so where do we look for more updated information? There are two other sources. One is the European Respiratory Society and American Thoracic Society Guidelines for the Management of Severe Asthma, uh, which was published in the um, uh, American Thoracic Society Journal uh, in 2015, I think. Uh, but what I'm going to focus on today is, is the Global Initiative for Asthma, uh, which does not advertise itself as guidelines, as, as, but, but it is the most up-to-date, uh, data-driven um, uh, source of information for, for asthma management. The Global Initiative for Asthma is a multicultural, multi-country uh, group, and you can see representing first world, third world countries um, entirely. The, the, that's, this is the overall assembly. The scientific committee is made up of 13 individuals representing 10 countries who meet twice a year. They've been meeting twice a year since 2002. They review the, as, the, the, the literature for the last six months, and then once a year they publish an update based on, for instance, the 2018 update was based on the literature from July 2016 to July 2017. So it's only about six months to a year out of sync. Uh, but it's a, it's, it's a, a, a great uh, guideline. The people who serve on this assembly, on this board, um, serve without pay, serve in a volunteer capacity. There are two people from the United States, two people from Canada uh, in the group. There, there's several similarities to the, new, uh, the NIH guidelines in that they do use a validated uh, questionnaire as one of their major uh, tools for management. We use here primarily the asthma control test. There's the, uh, there, there, there are several other validated questionnaires, but they use a simpler one, as we'll see. They uh, point out the benefit of spirometry in both the evaluation and management of asthma. Uh, they use, they again promote inhaled uh, corticosteroids as the most effective management. Uh, they do have variable uh, recommendations based on age group, but theirs is divided, in, and we will go through them, into two age groups. It's the five and under population and the six and older population. So uh, school-age children, adolescents, and adults are sort of all lumped together in a single spectrum for guidelines. Um, and they do assess severity and control. 
Some of the things that are different, and I just pointed out some of them, interestingly, whereby the NIH guidelines, the determination of asthma severity is the basis for your initiation of treatment, um, the, the guideline in, from the uh, Global Initiative for Asthma is after you treat somebody and they get under control, then you decide what their severity is based on what it, what it takes to determine control. It's a, a little bit of a different, but it, but it makes a little bit of sense. Uh, they do use a more focused, shorter questionnaire. They focus on risk for poor outcome, um, and we will talk about some of that. And interesting, because this is a consortium representing uh, both high resource and low resource areas, they point out some of the adaptations that, that, that you need for management of asthma in low resource areas. The, the recommendations are generally more user friendly, and there's some alternative steroid, uh, inhaled steroid approaches that we will talk about uh, where we get into some of the off-label uh, uses, and then there are some new medication recommendations. So that is the source of much of what um, I am I'm going to talk to you about. It, like the NIH guidelines, you know, it's a stack of pages this thick, um, uh, but very well uh, literature documented um, and, and, and a good source of information. And there's not a, there's not a, a, a Cliff Notes version oh, that there were. Um, you, if you have paid attention to the asthma guidelines, the NIH asthma guidelines, you are familiar with this kind of a table for uh, management, for pharmacotherapy, showing uh, the steps moving from less severe to more severe or less intense to more intense. Um, this in the NIH guidelines is based on intermittent, uh, mild persistent, moderate persistent, severe persistent, but it's a spectrum. It's not, it's not one, two, three. The interesting thing here is that in patients with intermittent asthma, uh, in addition to as-needed short-acting uh, beta agonists, uh, the, the current recommendation or consideration is for uh, in daily inhaled steroids in those who are at a risk for poor outcome, even if their symptoms are intermittent. And this is based on some, some literature, primarily both, both from the U.S. and from, um, from England, that um, use of daily inhaled steroids, even in people who would be considered intermittent asthma, if they have frequent exacerbations or have risk factors for poor outcome, which we'll, we'll look at in a, in a, in a minute, uh, you may want to consider that uh, in, the, in the milder uh, category. They don't particularly distinguish between intermittent and, and persistent mild asthma. They sort of lump mild uh, into, into these two groups, uh, step one and step two, and then moderate and severe into these three groups. But that's one of the differences between the, the U.S. recommendations. If the U.S. recommendation had been updated more recently, it might be in there also, but because this is the more recent literature. Uh, the, the mild to moderate is similar to the U.S. It's inhaled low-dose uh, steroids is the uh, primary recommendation with uh, leukotriene receptor antagonists as an alternative. Uh, stepping up, it's uh, stepping up to inhaled steroids with long-acting beta agonist as a first step-up drug. And you will recall that in the NIH guidelines, this is the first step-up drug also, particularly in the older, in the, in the uh, older school-aged children and above. But since 2007, we have gone through a change and back in that when the U.S. guidelines were published in 2007, the black box warning had not been put on to long-acting beta agonists at that point. Then we had to, we sort of wretcheded back our use of the combined drugs because of the black box warning, uh, indicating that there was an increased risk of death from asthma in patients using those drugs. Uh, then the black box warning was taken off. 
because there wasn't an increased death, risk of death from asthma in the patients that used those drugs. Uh, so we're sort of back to square one, and, and the, 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 what, was, what was the recommendation before probably will be the recommendation again. The other thing that's different is when you get out here to the management of severe asthma, two different things. One is the consideration of teotropium as an add-on uh, to the inhaled steroids, long-acting beta agonists with a, without a leukotriene modifier. Uh, and the other is the role of the, of the biologics. Uh, omeluzumab, omeluzumab uh, which is known as Zolaire, has been on the market for 15 years now, and that's the only biologic in, uh, mentioned in the U.S. guideline. Um, there are other biologics, which we'll talk about in a minute, which are now available and now approved for use uh, in children down as young as, as 12, uh, whereas the omelizumab has come down to age 6 as being the guidelines. So these are sort of the, the, the big overview of the differences. I want to talk first about teotropium um, because this is the, it is a, uh, an anticholinergic, a muscarinic agent. It's similar action to the... Uh, uh, Atrovent. What's the, the generic name for atrovent? Um, Ipratropium. Thank you. I should have gotten the tropium. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is similar action, except it's a long acting. It was first marketed for um, COPD, but based on use of ipratropium in patients with asthma and the response of some patients, it has made its way into the asthma world, and it was uh, approved down to um, only down to, to age 18. Uh, but only, but recently has been approved for use down to age six to eleven, and this was the study uh, published in uh, two thousand five, two thousand. I can't see the fifteen. Okay, thank you. To, study published in two thousand fifteen of teotropium in children. It was the. It comes in two different doses. It comes in a one point two five microgram and a two point five microgram. The dose for COPD is five micro, five micrograms once a day, um, which is which is uh, two puffs from the inhaler. This was a crossover study looking at 1.25 and 2.5 micrograms uh, in, excuse me, 2 point, the, the inhalers, the 1.25 and 2.5 microgram inhalers used to give a 2.5 to 5 microgram dose in children 6 to 11 years old. It was a crossover study, and you will see that the, the placebo, if this is change in FEV1, and this is over three hours after dose, is there's no change in FEV1 in the placebo group. The lower dose group, the uh, one point, the 1.25 microgram dose group was um, lower than the 2.5 and 5 microgram dose group, and there, therefore the, the marketing indication is for 2.5 micrograms once a day as an additional add-on for poorly controlled asthma, uh, but now approved down to age uh, 6 just very recently. It was, it was 12 and above before. So this is, this is a new data-driven uh, uh, tool, and I have found it very, very helpful. I probably will use it more, more than I have. Interestingly, it comes in two different forms. The, uh, uh, not Resumad, the, uh, what, what, is, what is the name? The Ready Halo. Thank you. It says right there on it. Is, if any of you who are, old, who are as old as I am, the, the, the guys in the, in the back corner, um, <laughs> will, will remember the, uh, the chromalin, the old chromalin dispenser. When chromalin first came on the market, it was a dry powder inhaler. Chromalin's now pretty much off the market. Uh, this is a capsule with a dry powder that's put into a, an inhaler. You, click, you, you break the capsule and inhale the dry powder. And this is how it was first marketed. This is an 18-microgram dose. This is indicated for COPD. I have used it some in asthma patients. Uh, this is the new um, Respimat inhaler, which is a canister that you plug into a 
an inhaler, but it's a, a self-propelled, you, you have to twist the bottom a half a turn and then put it in the mouth and click and it's a, a fine mist spray. So it's, it's a no uh, spacer, fine mist spray that's used directly in the mouth, one inhale inhalation, hold while you count to 10, uh, or excuse me, two inhalations, hold while you count to 10 once a day for a long acting form. This is the form that's approved for use in asthma. This form is actually not even indicated for asthma, but because this is less expensive, many of the, many of the insurance companies will not approve this, but they will approve this. So it's, you know, but, but nonetheless, this is the dose, this is, the, there's only one dose of this. This is the dose that's indicated for COPD. I think that with the new literature, we can probably push harder to say this is what's approved, this is what's approved for, for use in children as young as six as an add-on for moderate to severe asthma. So moving back to the, uh, to the, the global initiative guidelines, um, the diagnosis of asthma is pretty straightforward in their algorithm. You have symptoms, you have uh, uh, you, well, you have a, a patient who, who may have symptoms, um, you take a detailed history and you confirm those symptoms and your, your concern for risk. Uh, interestingly, they say if there is a, uh, an urgency, you just treat them and then you come back and reevaluate. If there's not an urgency and if the patient's able, then you do a pulmonary function test uh, with a bronchodilator response. And if it's positive and in the context of the symptoms, then you have a diagnosis of asthma and you treat them. Um, fairly straightforward. If things don't match up, then you look for other diagnoses. Um, and even if they don't match up, you may consider a therapeutic trial and, and uh, reevaluate. So how do you assess asthma severity? They assess asthma, so they recommend assessing asthma severity retrospectively. So this is, this is diagnosis, but this doesn't tell you how, how severe a patient is, uh, based on the level of treatment required to control the symptoms and exacerbations after the patient's been on controller treatment for several months. So it's, it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive to the way that we have been taught to, to manage asthma. We, we decide before they're ever treated, and then this is one big thing about the NIH guidelines, is the assessment of severity is prior to initiation of treatment. If a patient has already been initiated uh, on, on, on therapy other than uh, short-acting beta agonists as needed, then the, from, the, from, again, our holy grail standpoint, the water's been muddied, and you don't really know. You sort of have to assess. Then you're, you're, you're locked into assessing severity based on what it took to get them to, to control or, what the, or, or maybe they're not controlled on what they're, they're using, and therefore they're more severe, and it's going to take more to get them into control. So this is just simply starting out by saying, yeah, you, treat, you do what it needs to, to do to treat them, and then you assess the severity to guide your future treatment uh, after that. The other thing is severity is not static. Um, and severity is the underlying state of asthma, and there are things that can happen to change the underlying state of asthma. For one thing we deal with, we deal with kids grow and change, and puberty, as I say to many patients, puberty is kind to some patients and not kind to some patients. <laughs> um, some, children, some, some children who have had fairly severe problems with asthma in younger childhood may indeed have become less severe and even go into a honeymoon period uh, as they get into adolescence and not have symptoms and be able to come off drugs. I can't guarantee them that they will never have problems in the future. And many people who develop adult asthma probably had unrecognized uh, asthma as children, called recurrent bronchitis, recurrent pneumonia, what have you. 
went through a honeymoon period in, in puberty and young adulthood and then developed symptoms later. But nonetheless, puberty is also sometimes the onset of asthma symptoms. People who have not had any problems develop problems as teenagers. <laughs> so things happen to change the underlying status. Other things that happen, we identify allergies and address them. Tobacco smoke exposure or other air pollutants are identified and addressed. So this underlying state of asthma can change. You're not always mild or always severe, which is a little bit difficult sometimes because we have to, we have to change our, our, our treatment um, and we have to justify why we're changing our treatment. Is, 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 is the state of asthma different or is the control of asthma different? What's, what's the case? So it's, it's, it's an interesting conundrum. Um, they list the categories still as, as mild, moderate, and severe. And again, they lump the sort of the intermittent and what we would call persistent mild into one category in this, this global initiative. Um, moderate asthma is that that is in control with low-dose inhaled steroids uh, with a long-dose, uh, a long excuse me, a long-acting beta agonist. And severe is that over on the, the right-hand side of the graph, the chart, that needs more intensive therapy to, for management is how, how they classify it, which is, again, a little bit different from the way it's classified by the U.S. guidelines. I haven't decided that either of these is, is exactly right, but I do recognize that the, the international guidelines are certainly more updated and, and uh, current literature-based. Um, the, the questionnaire used by the Global Initiative for the assessment of, of, of symptom control is much simpler than the, even the asthma control test. And there is one questionnaire. You'll recall that the asthma control test has one scale for children 4 to 11 that, that has five questions, I think, that the child is supposed to answer with smiley faces for, for how well they're doing on a given day, and then three questions for the parent to answer. You come up with a, a sum score. The adult or the adolescent adult version is five questions for the patient to answer. So they're two different, they're two different questionnaires, whereas the global initiative uses a single questionnaire for all ages, young children, older children, uh, and adults, that is four, four questions. Do you have daytime symptoms more than twice a week, nighttime waking at all due to asthma, reliever needed for symptoms more than twice a week, and uh, activity limitation due to asthma? And their determination of control is if everything is negative, you're well controlled. If you have even one or two, you're poorly controlled. And if you have more than two, three or four positive answers, then you're very poorly controlled. Uh, and this drives change in therapy. If you're well controlled, you can choose to stay where you are or you can choose to step down a bit. If you're not well controlled, then you need to consider stepping up therapy. Risks... Um, Risk factors for exacerbations, you, those of you who are students of the, the NIH guidelines will recognize that some of these risk factors for poor exacerbations are in the NIH guidelines as risk factors for sudden death from asthma. Those who have, uh, who have been hospitalized, who have been intubated, who have uh, used more than, uh, I think it's more than six canisters of short-acting beta agonists in a year, um, those, so these are fairly similar to what we in the NIH guidelines talk, uh, talk about as risk for sudden death. These are risks for poor outcomes. Sudden death is certainly a poor outcome. Um, so risk factors for, for having asthma exacerbations are whether one is ever, has ever been intubated, whether they have uncontrolled symptoms, whether they have more than one exacerbation in the last 12 months. This uses pulmonary function, low FEV1, uh, 
and they recommend measuring pulmonary function to start of treatments and, and at three to six months and then periodically thereafter. Interestingly, incorrect inhaler technique, which we probably pay too little attention to, but is a very you know, incomplete, in, inadequate use of the medications you've been prescribed is a risk factor for poor outcome. Smoking, um, elevated nitric oxide in adults with allergic asthma, and uh, obesity, pregnancy, and bloody eosinophilia. Um, risk act, act factors for medication side effects include uh, frequent oral steroids, high-dose potent inhaled steroids, and uh, cytochrome P450 inhibitors. One thing that is not a list in this, uh, listed in this group, uh, obesity is listed as a risk factor for poor outcome. The role of vitamin D in asthma and asthma management is not listed and is still a topic in, uh, in discussion, a hot topic in discussion. And I will give a shout out. Uh, uh, Brian O'Sullivan is the national PI of a, a, a NIH-sponsored study looking at the role of vitamin D in obesity in children with asthma. We are getting ready to, uh, to start up our site too soon. It will be a two-part study. Uh, the first is vitamin D pharmacokinetics because nobody really knows what vitamin D pharmacokinetics are in obese children. Uh, and it's suspected that it will take a greater, they're fat-soluble vitamins, that it will take a higher dose than expected in, of vitamin D to attain adequate serum levels in obese children. Uh, and so once, once the uh, pharmacokinetic study is done, then there will be a, an, inter, uh, an intervention study. So we will be looking for children at the 85th percentile BMI or above uh, with asthma. It does require frequent blood draws, as you can imagine, for a pharmacokinetic study. And it will, will, will require monthly visits for six, for six months, uh, with blood draws monthly for six months. So be, be aware of those. And, and if you have anybody in your practice you, that you think might be interested, we, are, we had originally hoped that we would be doing this both here and at the Manchester site. But because of requirements from the Central Coordinating Center and um, some internal things that happened with us in terms of loss of a coordinator in Manchester, we will be doing it only here in Lebanon. Um, and Mary McNally and uh, Dean Jarvis, thank you. Uh, Dean Jarvis are the, are the study coordinators, so they will be our, our, um, our point people. But be aware of those patients. Another thing that is um, interesting in the global initiative guidelines is not just simply outlining this is what you do for ABC, but giving some consideration for patient preference or for environmental. This is sort of where, at a certain level, where the um, treatment in low resource areas comes into, into play. So considering other factors, considering a broader array of factors in the treatment decisions. Um, therefore, it takes a discussion with the individual patient. What, what is the patient's preferred treatment for symptom control and risk reduction? And, you know, as you well know, patients often prefer the short-acting beta agonists because they feel better after they use them and they don't want to bother to use something that they have to use every day, but they don't really feel different when they use it, and they're always concerned about the steroids and the steroid side effects. Um, and so it has to be an educated decision as, as to what the patient's choice is. But it, when push comes to shove, in reality, regardless of what we recommend, the patient's going to direct the treatment when they get home, the patient and or the parents anyway. But at least having a discussion for what the preferred treatment is for symptom control. And part of this also gets to the use of uh, inhaled steroid with long-acting beta agonists versus the addition of uh, or substitution of the uh, leukotriene modifiers. 
and you will have seen that the leukotriene modifiers play a pretty low role in the, in the, the guidelines, in, the, in the, the stepwise guidelines. They are, they are, I won't say subjugated, but the, the, the benefit of the combined inhaled steroid long-acting beta agonist is pushed over the leukotriene um, receptor antagonist as a secondary drug. Many patients will prefer that because it's easier to take. Uh, it's a pill, it's a once-a-day tablet, um, so, but, but that consideration needs to be discussed. Um, does the patient have any known things that predict their response? Um, do they know what exacerbates them? That might help guide your therapy. Uh, what are their goals and concerns for asthma? And then things like inhaler technique. When, when the parents of young children often ask me about inhaler versus nebulizer, and I know this is a hot topic, um, because on the inpatient side, well, interestingly, on the inpatient side, we have been using nebulizer over inhaler because of cost. Using a jet nebulizer treatment for children with asthma, and then, so that's the, that's the automatic response. Am I not correct, House staff? Is if you don't, if you don't select and, and, uh, and have a good reason for use of a metered dose inhaler, particularly for the short-acting beta agonists, the nebulizer form is chosen, not because it's more effective, but because it's less expensive. Um, so, so in the outpatient arena, that is also uh, comes to play, and particularly with young children, my response is, what are they going to take? How, you know, how, are you, how, how is the patient going to do with it? Some parents prefer using the nebulizer, not because it's, not because it's better, but because it's easier to them. The child will, will adapt to it better, we'll, and we will even sit still for 10 minutes twice a day and do a nebulized medicine with a mask on, but for some reason they don't like the metered dose inhaler with a spacer and mask. On the other hand, the child who won't sit still for 10 minutes twice a day and won't keep a mask on, uh, the, sh the, the, the inhaler with a spacer and mask is a heck of a lot faster. But you have to have that negotiated conversation with them to find out what their goals are for therapy, um, as, as, as opposed to saying this is the best drug. The efficacy, you know, you're going to find the literature all over the place. They're, they're pretty equally effective. And, and the most effective drug is the one that the patient will take um, in, in reality. Um, I think that's the... Uh, oh, oh, well, the other issue is, is, is cost. Can the patient afford the medication? And as, as many of you know, we have gotten into insurance preferred drug lists um, and, and, and cost issues. The, the, the New Hampshire Medicaid changed their preferred drug list, particularly for the controller medicines, almost on a weekly basis. And <laughs> patients, patients end up getting switched back and forth from one brand to another. And if we prescribe, you know, many patients, if we prescribe one brand just because that's our knee-jerk go-to brand, Many patients with private insurance may pay a huge copay, and we never know it when there was a different drug that had a, had a better copay. So knowledge of what the insurance preferred drug lists are is, is, uh, is helpful. Our sure scripts, our prescribing information in, in the chart, does help us with that, with, with if it's correct, which not, not always is, but if it's correct, it does give us some hints as to what are preferred and what are non-preferred drugs on what a, state, a patient's stated um, insurance plan is. We, there have been some changes. This is a little bit of a, of a sidestep. There have been some changes in drug delivery methods. And again, we have gotten into this in, um, in, the, um, in, in, in prescribing. QVAR, which was the preferred drug on the New Hampshire Medicaids for inhaled steroids, it's a, a beclomethasone, um, they changed their, their delivery method from a standard meter dose inhaler 
to a click hailer. And I was very resistant for a while saying, little kids can't do this. Little kids can't do this. But I'm going to show you if I can get to it. Um, Keith, how do we get, does this mouse work on, the, on here? Yes. Um, this is the <laughs> volume. We got the message. <laughs> so, so actually, I've, I've, um, I can do it. They can do it. Uh, and it is, this is approved down to age four. So where, we, where we're going to run into trouble is when we use inhaled steroids in the younger kids who, who can't do it necessarily. Um, but even the pre, some preschool children can, can do it. And this is on, now I don't know, I think still on the, the uh, preferred list for the, or they switched back to Flovent. This week. So back and forth. But the QVAR ready inhaler, QVAR, QVAR is not available in the meter dose inhaler anymore. So if a child needs a meter dose inhaler, they've got to have another brand. Some other things, just in terms of the practicality, there are other RespaClick inhalers, like the QVAR ready inhaler. Uh, and interestingly, these are all made by the same pharmaceutical company, Teva, who is a, 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 put ProAir on the market several years ago. ProAir, which is albuterol, still is available in the meter dose inhaler, but is also available in the ReadyClick. Benefit, don't have to have a spacer. So school-aged kids can carry it around without having to have a spacer. Downside, not necessarily preferred on many insurance plans yet, um, but it, it is out there as an availability. You just saw QVAR, the, uh, the methazone. They have just come onto the, to the market with a new competition for the long-acting uh, beta agonist inhaled steroids called AirDuo. It is the same drug as um, Advair. It's the, the um, flucicazone and salmeterol, but the doses are a little bit different. Uh, you can see that the Air Duo has slightly different dosing, considered to be equivalent to the Advair meter dose inhaler. The thing I want to point out is the Advair discus is out there also and is, is preferred on many insurance uh, plans. But you've got to be real careful because the knee-jerk knee prescription response is two puffs twice a day. And with the discus form, you've got your two puffs in one inhalation. So we have to be very careful not to prescribe two puffs twice a day if you're using the discus form because we will over, overdose them, particularly with the salmeterol. Um, so, and, and that would be not good. So we have to be careful in switching back and forth from dry powder to... Um, to, well, to dry powder, this is actually a dry, all of these are a dry powder inhaler, you saw as that, as that mist, um, but different forms of dry powder inhaler and standard HFA meter dose inhaler. So, moving back to the, to the more theoretical, um, how do you distinguish between uncontrolled and severe asthma? That's where we, you know, you've got somebody who's not doing well. Do they have uncontrolled asthma that's not that, that severe, or do they really have severe asthma? Well, the one thing, as we have already said, is check their, check their medication compliance. 
which you, you know that you can go to SureScripts in the chart and look at drug dispenses for the last six months. You can also take the time to call the pharmacy, um, but you can and, and, and check, are they really taking, are they really at least picking up the medicine that's been prescribed? Even if they pick it up, there's no guarantee it's been taken. But if they're not picking it up, they're for sure not taking it. And the answer is often, oh, I had plenty at home. You know, I had some from when I was in the hospital, or I had extra inhalers at home. Well, you don't get extra inhalers because they're only going to give you a month's supply at a time, or if you live in Vermont, three months' supply at a time. So, so yeah, I had extra at home, doesn't cut it. Um, if, they, if they have it, are they doing it right? So check their technique, um, and then make sure you've got the right diagnosis. Is this really asthma? And the, the thing that I see frequently is... Uh, vocal cord dysfunction or exercise vocal cord dysfunction that has been misdiagnosed as asthma. So make sure that we are, we are, we are seeing, you know, making the right diagnosis. Is it is in, in some of the other places, you know, tuberculosis, uh, cystic fibrosis, other things may enter into the differential diagnosis. So there is still a differential diagnosis. Are there risk factors that haven't been addressed? Tobacco smoke, allergens, et cetera. Um, and then consider step-up treatment and or consider... Uh, moving to a, uh, a, a consultation. Um, the step-up treatment at this point gets to the addressing of asthma phenotypes um, and asthma biomarkers. Um, asthma phenotypes are allergic and non-allergic. Teotropium is appropriate step-up treatment for regardless of phenotype. When you get into the uh, allergic phenotype, the TH2 phenotype, um, you, you get into looking at biomarkers, and we will talk about those in a minute, but they, they, that makes a difference. Teotropium, however, is a step-up therapy that's regardless of, of phenotype. The, the concept of what constitutes high-dose inhaled steroids is often a question that's asked. What's low-dose, what's high-dose, and what's high-dose by age? And I show you this chart to say it's not all black and white. The different sets of guidelines have different definitions of what constitutes high-dose steroids. Um, I don't expect anybody to, to, to memorize this or look at it, but just to understand that there's still a range of what is high-dose steroids depending on where you look. So when we get into the young child, um, and this is the, the five and under population and sort of the, the, the pre-pulmonary function population, you're stuck in terms of making a diagnosis with... Um, a history, that history comes not from the patient, but from another observer, who's usually the parent, and, and sort of recapitulating it. You don't have, and a physical exam, you don't have the, the, uh, the, the benefit of the objective data from pulmonary function. So if you look, uh, in this, and this can change over time, if a child is primarily a viral wheezer and has less than 10 days of, of symptoms with each illness and only a couple of episodes a year, they're less likely to be an allergic patient. If they have uh, more than 10 days and have more than three episodes a year and symptoms between episodes and, and atopy or family history of asthma, they're more likely to be an allergic, allergic patient. But this, this spectrum can change over time. And I'm going to skip through this for right now because we're, I want to get to the biologics. Um, Features suggesting uh, asthma in children less than five include chronic cough, and this is another area that is, is very difficult to deal with. In a chronic cough, are you dealing with an upper respiratory issue, a lower respiratory issue? But consideration of the diagnosis of asthma with a chronic non-productive cough may be worse at night. Uh, cough with exercise, other things, 
Um, but the other thing, when you look down here at the, at the center, some, some parents come in saying, my child's breathing heavy, my child's having difficulty breathing. It's not very specific, but asthma needs to be in the differential diagnosis, particularly if that changes with exercise or laughing or crying. If they're just not exercising as much, not, not up to themselves, very vague, you know, a not very specific historic, and, and may have not very specific physical uh, findings. In these patients, you may want to consider what I have done heretofore is a, a, a therapeutic trial of scheduled short-acting beta agonists. Albuterol meter dose inhaler three times a day for two weeks, not forever, but for two weeks to see if you can make a big difference in their symptoms before you commit them to an to a, uh, inhaled steroids. Uh, the, the global initiative recommends even considering a therapeutic trial of low-dose inhaled steroids in this situation. But again, reevaluation at, at intervals. Uh, the pharmacotherapy for the younger children is pretty much the same, except the, the option of the low-dose inhaled steroids for the mild is not, uh, is not part of their major um, uh, recommendation. It's moderate low-dose inhaled steroids with or without other, a drug, uh, and then step up. The biologics and teotropium do not appear here uh, in the children under five. And again, what constitutes low-dose steroids is sort of the, the flip side of, of, uh, of, of the equation. And this is only their recommendation, uh, is uh, low, what constitutes low-dose steroids. Um, assessment of control is pretty much the same. Um, and you also want to assess their risk for exacerbations within the next few months. And things that, that lead to exacerbation in the next few months are uncontrolled symptoms, one or more severe exacerbations in the previous year, um, the, a, a seasonal asthma. We see kids who have seasonal asthma, and one of the recommendations is you may consider co-seasonal treatment uh, through, with, with inhaled steroids. Um, do they have exposures? What are the psychological and psychosocial factors in the family that are causing, that, that, that may be contributors? And, and is there, are there adherence issues? The low-resource settings we... Uh, talked about already to a certain extent, but they, they point out that it even, even high-resource countries can have low-resource settings. This, this is not just third world, that we have low-income areas in this country that we may need to consider. Um, up to 50% of asthma is undiagnosed, but there may be 30% overdiagnosis of asthma in these settings because of lack of objective things that we're using sometimes. Um, and other things that may cause chronic respiratory symptoms have to be considered. Pulmonary function is still a major controller, but interestingly, they recommend the World Health Organization Package of Essential Non-Communicable Disease Interventions, what a, what a name, uh, recommends the use of providing peak flow meters and using peak flow in low-resource settings, recognizing the limitations of peak flow as being an effort-dependent measurement and only applicable to those that are old enough to do it well. But using this is a cost-effective provision in low-resource settings as an objective measure of, of uh, <clears throat> asthma potential. Um, going back, now this is, this is not the young children, this is the older children, stepwise management of pharmacotherapy. So this is what we saw before. Two things I want to point out. One, uh, whoops, back up. Um, one that I failed to point out before that I think is on here is in the step three and four, the Europeans use the combined long-acting beta agonist formoterol, which is different from salmeterol that's an ad there. Formoterol is in what we, what we use as Simbacort and Dulera. 
but the inhaled steroid plus long-acting beta agonist for Motorol specifically as a rescue medicine. It's been used in Europe for a number of years. It's recognized, it's, it's recognized in these guidelines. And again, this is another off-label. Formoterol has a short onset of action, uh, so it can be used as a step-up, increasing your dose of your controller medicine if it is a controller medicine, including Formoterol, can be an appropriate step-up intervention for moderate to severe asthma. Um, the question of doubling, tripling, quadrupling, quintupling inhaled steroids as a treatment uh, or as a, as a, as a step-up therapy uh, is out there. There's been a very mixed literature as to whether it's beneficial or not beneficial. The, the global initiative does consider using add-on or PRN inhaled steroids in patients who respond with them, but you would use a fairly high dose. And they do acknowledge the literature that quadrupling or quintupling your maintenance dose of inhaled steroids may be beneficial. But we're going to get to the biologics quickly. Um, the necessary um, cascade of, of mediators, you've got all the evil humors up here which affect the, uh, airway, the uh, airway mucosa, uh, trigger dendritic cells, and which go either to the Th1, this is the, the uh, type 1 thymic cells, and this is the, uh, the infectious, more infectious pathway with a neutrophilic outcome, or to the Th2, which is the allergic cells, the allergic side, if you're a Th2 or a uh, based person with B cell production of IgE affecting mast cells, eosinophils, and, and ultimately smooth muscle constriction. And I show this primarily to, to, to show that there are, you know, there's a specific pathway and all the mediators because the biologics are mediator specific. If you move to the, the, the shortened version of that, um, omalizumab or Zolaire is an anti-IgE antibody, so it specifically ties up the IgE. These are all directed towards the allergic, the Th2 side of the equation. Uh, it ties up circulating IgE so that it cannot trigger mast cells, release the mast cells' evil humors, which cause more eosinophil uh, chemotaxis and the smooth muscle uh, uh, constriction that, that causes asthma. So omeluzumab uh, does decrease the circulating IgE, um, and as well as interfere with its function. And that's what's been on the market for, for 15 years. Mepiluzumab, marketed as Nucala, is an anti-IL-5 antibody. So it, 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 it interferes with eosinophil chemotaxis and release of eosinophil mediators. There's also a resoluzumab that is not indicated for children, not indicated under 18, and benreluzumab, uh, which is an anti-IL-5 receptor antagonist. So this this is an anti-IL-5 antibody. This is an anti-IL-5 receptor antibody. Um, and then most recent to the market uh, is dupilumab. Now, it's been in, on the market for uh, severe atopic dermatitis for a number of years and was just approved for asthma within the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, is an anti-IL-4. Where is it? Right here. Anti-IL-4, anti-IL-13. Again, involved in eosinophils or in, in the eosinophil side of, of asthma. These are the studies, and I'm not going through all the different studies, uh, but the, this is literature-driven. But, the, but there, are, there are the studies of these particular drugs, and interestingly, the biomarkers, this is where the, it comes to the biomarkers. IgE and eosinophil count are the two biomarkers for asthma. You dose uh, uh, omeluzumab based on the weight and IgE level, 
you dose the, you, you qualify for the other drugs based on eosinophilia and, and moderate to severe asthma. Interestingly, the patients who had higher eosinophil counts, circling eosinophil counts, got better responses to the other, uh, to the, the anti-eosinophil drugs. I also want to point out one down here at the bottom, fevropant, uh, fevropant, which is a, um, an oral. These are all, these are all injectable drugs. Uh, this is an oral, uh, uh, not leukotriene, um, rats, what's the word? Because it, it doesn't, prostaglandin, an oral prostaglandin G2 receptor uh, uh, antagonist that is in study, has not been released at all, certainly will not come to children, but may be a, a great benefit in the biologics, as it were. Looking at costs, because these things do come with a cost, um, the omeluzumab that we use, doses based on weight and serum IgE at outset, costs $1,300 for a 150-milligram vial. Most doses take three vials, even if you end up wasting some. Um, and so it's about $109,000 a year, plus the cost of coming to the clinic to get injections, plus the cost of an EpiPen. Um, the new one, dupilumab, uh, costs 300, milli excuse me, 300 milligrams per two mils, that costs $1,700. The higher dose, and I'm, I'm not entirely clear which dose, but it's a 400 milligram load and a 600 milligram load. The 600 milligram load and then 300 milligrams every two weeks costs $91,000 a year, but it's given at home. It's a home injection, so you get away from clinic costs. The mepiluzumab and benzeruluzumab are about the same. Uh, the mepiluzumab is a once-a-month dose. The benzeruluzumab is every month for three doses and then every eight weeks, so there's a little bit lower clinic cost, but they're about the same cost overall. So these are expensive drugs. Um, but, uh, and inter interestingly, the mandate to give these drugs in the clinic and for patients to, give a, to bring an uh, uh, EpiPen is not necessarily well-founded. And again, a shout-out to Marcus Shaker and Emily Dutil, our pharmacist, uh, they, are, they are modeling, what's your risk of dying in an accident on the way to the clinic to get your shot versus dying from anaphylaxis for getting the shot? And Marcus is into this. He's got a paper coming out this week looking at, at, at um, with, with peanut allergy and EpiPens. What, what should be the cost of an EpiPen for peanut allergy to be effective? And, it's, and the answer is not $600. Um, um, so, so looking at... Because it may not be necessary. If you really look at the cost effectiveness, it may be that we're not doing patients a favor by giving them their injections in the clinic and having them come and wait three hours and, and, and uh, carry EpiPens. Um, because it, their risk from, from dying for, from anaphylaxis may be a whole lot lower than their risk from getting in an automobile accident on the way to the clinic. Stay tuned for that one. So the take-home message. Um, we may want to consider low-dose inhaled steroids for those who have intermittent asthma if they have risk for frequent uh, exacerbations or poor outcome. We may want to consider adding the anticholinergic teotropium for moderate to severe asthma that's not well in control, and this is sometimes referred to as triple therapy. We need to differentiate between poorly, poorly managed or poorly controlled and severe asthma and, and intervene appropriately, and then consider the uh, biologics uh, for moderate or severe asthma, uh, particularly for those with uh, perennial allergies or with eosinophilia. And with that, I give you a sunrise over Haleakala. So do you, um, I don't have a sense of how many kids are allergic versus 
viral versions because these seem to be attacking the, the antibody therapy seems to be really predominantly for the allergic. It is. It is. Most young children are primarily viral driven. I, I will say viral respiratory infections are the most common trigger for asthma uh, across the board. Okay. Uh, young children with recurrent wheezing, uh, you know, there, there is, this, and this goes back, one, one of the studies, I, I, that one slide I slipped, flipped through, refers back to the Tucson Respiratory Study of the 1980s and 1990s, which is the only natural history study in the U.S., where they took over 1,200 newborns and followed them, um, looking at family history and cord blood IgE and skin tests and viral swabs every time they got sick. Um, and followed them into their 20s and 30s and have had a, a huge data mine, but they have developed what's the asthma predictive index that, that, and, and, and sort of the, 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 the stages. So the early wheezers are the children who wheeze with viral respiratory infections, who don't have a family history of asthma, and who, are, who don't have other signs of atopy like food allergy and atopic dermatitis, and they usually outgrow it by the time they get to school. Um, those are the early viral wheezers. The ones that start in the three to six-year-old range may be beginning to get into more allergic kids, and the kids that start older are much more likely to be allergic kids. But you figure into the mix uh, other signs of atopy, and particularly a parental history of asthma. The other thing that figures is peripheral bloody eosinophilia more than 4%. We don't go measuring that that much, but that's one of the things that, that will help you say you've got a, an, an asthma, a positive asthma predictive index. Uh, of having being persistent asthma, so so you're right. You're not going to you're not going to give the the biologics to anybody who's not allergic, and it's going to be six and over anyway, and and so the younger kids tend more to be viral, and they may be atopic, but we don't recognize it. But certainly in the context of a family history of atopy or, a, or, or asthma, you you think atopic, and then the older kids are going to tend to be allergic. But most kids with asthma probably have some degree of allergy. Are you seeing a shift over years towards more allergic, or is it kind of the same sort of? Thing? I don't know whether it's a shift or whether it's a recognition factor. Thanks, Lou. That was fantastic. Um, can you talk about the role of objective measurement about PFTs? Because as you know, it's challenging for us to get them. I'm never sure exactly what age I should start getting them. We can't do them within our clinic. I don't know what the capabilities are in our other community group primary care offices to be able to do it in-house. Um, but we have to refer them, they have to get a separate appointment, they have to go to the adult lab. So it's a barrier for us to get any objective measurements. Yes, you're right, it's a barrier, and I, I don't like it. Um, <laughs> I know in Manchester they can do them in the clinic. Um, in, I don't know about uh, Concord or, or the other community group practices, but they do have access in Manchester. Um, it is recommended as part of the diagnostic process, uh, and, and the, in, in in the NIH guidelines, it's part of the definition of mild, moderate, or severe. It's, it's, that's based, it's based on what your pulmonary function is. And then the, the global initiative guidelines were um, uh, recommend after three to four months of treatment and then at intervals after that. Most, most people would not start doing pulmonary function before school age. Now, in, in, my more, in, in patients in a referral practice, who are more severe asthma or my CF population, we'll start at age four recognizing we're not getting usable results. We're just doing it in a learning phase of teaching them how to do it and getting them comfortable with it. 
I've had four and five-year-olds that could do reasonable reproducible uh, pulmonary functions. I've had nine or ten-year-olds that can't do it. Um, so a lot. I mean, it, ta it takes you know, your child with ADHD who's hopping all over the room isn't going to be able to do it because you've got to be able to concentrate and blow, 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 blow until somebody tells you to take a deep breath. Um, Yes, I would love to be able to embed spirometry into, into the primary care practice. Um, and we had a conversation several years ago uh, with Sue, and we could probably have a conversation again. Um, but the, the issues have to do, and, and we have the issue down in our specialty practice, is the quality of doing the test itself. You've got to have people who are good with children and who do it enough to get, to, to get good quality results and to know when they don't have a good quality result. And that's, and that's the issue. Susie, I think we have pretty good pediatric nurses in our office. Yes, yes. No, no, and, it's, and, and then it's just a training issue. It's just a training issue. Yes? Um, I know this is step two. This is like back to the future. But it said low-dose theophylline. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, this, that's, that, this is international guidelines, mm -hmm. and, and as opposed to the U.S., it's still, it is still in the 2007 U.S. guidelines. Whether it will be in the next set of U.S. guidelines or not, I don't know. I've not used theophylline in, I've not used theophylline since I moved here, and I, I would say it's probably been 15 years since I've used theophylline. But it may be a, a, something that's available, uh, whereas some of these other drugs are not available. I mean, when I have been to East Africa, inhaled steroids are not available to the run-of-the-mill population, to the, to the regular population. Getting inhaled bronchodilators is very difficult in, in, that, in that setting. Um, all patients pretty much have to pay for their own drugs. Theophylline is probably dirt cheap. It comes with a pretty high risk-to-benefit ratio. Uh, and, that's, and that's the thing you have to consider. Because in the U.S., we would use drug monitoring, you know, serum-level monitoring as, as our guideline for maintenance or, or, or change of, of, of dose. So you're right. It is still in there in, in the global guidelines. But, but not likely to be used commonly in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, so there's, I, I want to teach people how to do PFTs on, on the GAP side. You can learn it easily, and um, so we just need equipment and time and staff availability. Sounds like we've got a project. Yeah. Okay. The question the offer from those on the video is Lentina is willing to teach staff if there's staff who wasn't doing it right. So it is nine o'clock, and we have probably lots more questions. But thank you, Luke, for updating us.